We're continuing where we left off. It is 11-22-2020, and we're ready to be continue with the thought of the week and prayer. Okay, and here is today's thought of the week. You belong to God. Your belonging goes far beyond the thought of your giving yourself to God. God owns you because he is the one who called you. He is the one who predestined you, redeemed, justified, and glorified you. In Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 30. He is the one who saved you by grace and planted your feet on the ground in this unique time where you are now a son, united to the Lord as a wife to her husband. It is clear the Father thought about us long before we had any thought at all. One thing we can take from Israel is the pride in God's divine calling. They never tire of telling the story of how the nation was formed. They tell of how God freed his people from slavery and bondage and how Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. We, who are in the church, can take a note here and develop some pride. God thought of the church, planned and established it according to his perfect will. He hid it within himself until he was ready to reveal it. Now, this story needs to be told and the manifold wisdom of God heralded throughout the universe. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. From Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Even though Paul was formerly Jewish, he is certainly honored to be in the church and has proudly embraced God's choice. Have you? And that is the thought of the week. And I would just like to add a simple uh, thought about our salvation. Salvation is by grace. It's not of work. It is the gift of God, not of our own doing, so that no one can boast. And once we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, it is now his 100% responsibility for our soul salvation. We do not have any. So God owns us completely, and we are saved completely when we trust in Christ as our Savior. And now I'd like to turn it over to Bill for our prayer. Okay. Does anyone have any uh, need of prayer at this time? We bring it forward. As I always say, pray for me, for surely not to have any need of prayer. Yes. Same thing here, my family and friends as well. Yes, also, um, for those who have just recently uh, contracted the coronavirus, we're asking for prayer for them. Okay. All right. Would that be it? 
thank you once again, O oh Father, you've given us the honor and the privilege to stand before you. At this time, O oh Lord, surely we stand in need. And we only have you to go to, O oh Lord. Surely you are our strength, our redeemer. You are the one who causes us to rise in the morning and to have peace sleep at night. You know, for surely the world has gone in a position that it has caused so many lives and so many sicknesses. We want to pray for this coronavirus, oh Lord, that we know that in all conformity of your will, things worked out for those. We pray that you not suffer our close loved ones, oh Lord, for surely we are the family of God. And we pray for them, oh Father, and we diligently ask that you Give them peace, O oh Lord. Give them comfort. Bring them through this, this virus, this time. Not just these alone, but for all of the, the world, for all the saints throughout the nations, O oh Lord. We want to pray for our pastor. We want to pray for all of the street church. We want to pray for understanding this day, O oh Lord. We want to pray that your word is in one of our hearts, that we may walk in a way that is joy in your sight, O oh Lord that we may honor you in the way that you have chosen us to do this. In Jesus' name, we can all pray as you have. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, uh, Bill and Dwight, for taking care of those um, thought of the week in prayer. We are glad to be here. And this is, uh, as we begin, we have to think about the week we're in. We're in November. And we're just getting ready to hit this Thanksgiving week, uh, which is Thursday, uh, this week coming up. So we are thankful. If we don't even think about what happened in this country, we can take a moment and think about uh, being thankful for what we have in Christ. Let that be our Thanksgiving focus uh, as we go through uh, another holiday season in the United States, well, we can use that as an opportunity to think about what God has done for us from eternity past. And guess what? Our only response to this can be thankfulness. So such an appropriate uh, response is um, the title of the day that we have in the U.S., Thanksgiving Day, right? So we, we will take that opportunity, as always. To, it's not just one day we're thankful, but we're, we're thankful always. But we can stop and review the passages of Scripture to ourselves of what God has done for us, even without our knowing it. And so you have notes in front of you, hopefully. Um, we're studying John chapter 15 and verse 10. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So as we make progress into chapter 15, we can see a theme developing. We see love playing a role in our motivation for fulfilling the Father's plan. Where does this love come from? God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's Romans 5.5. 5. When I think of what and where we came from, dead in our transgressions and sins, 
we had no motivation for God at all. We need humility to allow God the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. We have an opportunity to express our will for God. In salvation, we were asked, we were asked to make one decision of faith in Christ, and we are eternally saved. Here, we, are, we have the privilege of partnering with God and making many life decisions, thus allowing his influence to be seen in the world through us. So this is where we are, uh, John chapter 15, and we're going to try to take this uh, phrase by phrase. We have a few thoughts to consider as we do. Let's look at the first one. If you keep my commands. So this is the first thought of it, the uh, phrase. And I said Christ's commands are his introduction to the new mystery age for the disciples. Now, the reason why I, sh I can say this is because of the context. Now, I do realize that some people might read the context of John chapter 14 and, and all that we've been through and the distinctions that we have made, and they will still say they don't see any distinction in what Christ is saying here about the church age and it being unique and all of that. Well, you missed it. I'd say go back and read it some more because it's there. It's definitely there. And we, do we have to rehearse everything? No. You know what we're doing at this point? We're standing on the foundation that we have created in John chapter 14. We're not rebuilding and going to teach John 14 all over again. We're, that is the context of John 15, now where we are now. And we stand on that and the knowledge that it yielded as we went through it. So his commands are his introduction to the new mystery age for the disciples. Obviously, he's talking to the disciples. That's why I say for the disciples. So if I go to John 16, which are scriptures that are uh, ahead in the context, 16 and verses where Jesus says, um, 12 and 13, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. So what do you mean you got much more to say to us? More than So this relates the context back to, all the way back to 14, when he said that he was going to send the comforter, the, the spirit of truth. That's how we can link it all back. So verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So the the more, the much more that Jesus was talking about is this all truth that he refers to in verse 13. That all truth is what we have in this new age. Now, this is so interestingly, Jesus knew about all this stuff. It's not like he had to learn it. He knew about all this. And what the Spirit is doing, the Spirit is not reinventing information or coming up with or being innovative. The Spirit is taking from what is belongs to Christ and making it known to us. And this is on the inside. This is not some speaker on the outside of us telling us what is truth. This is internal witness. And the Spirit is in you. He, he's, he's convicting inside of you. And 
So it's not learning it from external sources per se. But God does employ external sources like pastor teachers, right? other believers. Right? We all contribute to uh, the knowledge. We build one another up as in, in the Lord. But, but notice what, where the rubber hits the road is the Holy Spirit is on the inside and he's the one that takes that information and makes it known to you. So, to me, Christ had a lot to say. This is the context of what he is saying about this new mystery age that began at Pentecost. So, moving forward, uh, we should say that the Christ established the foundation. And he said the foundation, this is in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on is the apostles, who the apostles were, the disciples who he was Jesus was talking to in John chapter 14 and 15 is where we're at prophets he employed new testament prophets who are also in the body of Christ but uh, you know we don't have a list of all the new testament prophets but some of the apostles also prophesied about future events as well and then so apostles prophets and uh, we can't leave out the, the pivotal person in the foundation. That would be Christ himself is in the foundation. Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Everything pivots on who he is. So point B, specifically, his commands. Right? So when it says, if, we, if you keep my commands, his commands are what he has been teaching them. So remember, we said it was to the disciples. You know, that's appropriate because that's who he was talking to at the time. So in chapter 17, 6 through 8, I want to read that. If you would turn there with me. So 17, 6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. So notice that the Father is the one who gave Christ. How did he give us to Christ? How did he give... How is it that... The Father gave these disciples to Christ, because that's who he's talking about, the disciples. And the way he did it is he chose them in him before the creation of the world. And that's what it means. How do we get to be in Christ? Well, we were chosen before creation to be in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 4. It, to me, it's really clear. So, But anyway, let's keep going. Let's see what Christ says about these people. Because it bears on, if you keep my commands. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Yeah, that's, so, so I would say, whatever Christ told them in this regard, he's telling the Father that they have obeyed your word. You are the Father's word. What's the Father's word? What the Father, uh, the Father's plan. So then, verse 7. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. So now they understand who Christ is in relationship to the Father. Because they now understand the Father's plan. I mean, it was the Father that was in Christ teaching them, as we have noted and uh, brought out. So that's... And then verse... Um, then another one is verse 8. That's where we are. For I gave them, here it is, the words you gave me. So Christ is now saying, I, I invented these words. This is my plan. No, this is the Father's plan. And he gave them 
the words you gave me. And what else? They accepted them. So we can say, if you keep my commands, well, by the time we get to chapter 17, Christ is of the opinion that they have obeyed. They have accepted the words that I gave them. So they have kept the commands, I would say, positively, just like Christ is. I gave them the words you gave me, and they have accepted them. And they knew with certainty, not just they knew about it, they knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. All the key ingredients here are baked into this. And they heard, like, so if Christ says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, right? So obviously, according to Christ, he did. And, to, and, and there was also another thought that they ought to love one another. This is a command that is very common that we see in 15. So if we look at um, verses 12, 15, 12, my command, Christ said, literally, if you keep my commands, and then he says later, this is my command, we better note what he's saying here. We, we don't want to just turn aside from this and say, well, this is not part of it. Yeah, it is. It's easy for me to pick that out of the context. If you keep my commands, uh, well, here's what my command is. Love each other as I have loved you. That's 1512. I think that's very significant. I honestly can't wait to get to that verse. So we can talk about that love and what it means. And just like Christ loved us, we ought to, to love each other. So we, we see a progression here. Um, we see that the Father loved me, Christ said, so I have loved you, now I remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Right? So not only is it this love, remaining in the love from the one who's given the plan and your devotion and, and all that to the plan, but then that love extends from the Father, now it extends to us. Right? We ought to love one another as well. And then verse 17 as well. There's another one. This is my command. <laughs> Love each other. And there's so it's not just about loving each other. This is also what we have to contend with. We have to make sure that we love each other. Now, of course, he's talking about the disciples. They needed to have a cohesive understanding uh, and a camaraderie, a rapport with each other. Not only that, they needed to be devoted to one another, committed to one another, prefer, have preference for one another. All of these things kept the cohesiveness of the foundation of the church. I mean, we still stand on that foundation today. Right? This is the foundation that was created for us, and the apostles, the, who were the, who, they were the disciples, are the ones who obeyed the commands, just like Jesus said, and, and was confident about their behavior in, as part of the foundation. So we know that they succeeded, no doubt about it. So point number C, let's, let's get on to uh, what does it mean to keep my commands. The word keep is tereo. It's just some definition from Thayer. It's good to have context to this. To attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard, metaphorically, to keep. 
uh, one in the state in which he is, to observe, to reserve, to undergo something. These are all ways this word could be used in Scripture. So as we look at the context, we could see how uh, Thayer is saying, uh, you know, or how the word fits into what the context or John's use of it. So I would say it means more, if I were to pick up uh, that meaning, it, it means to take care of carefully, to attend to carefully and to take care of. So if, if Christ gives you a command, it's important, right? We, we don't, he doesn't just give us commands to say, oh, well, you could choose to obey them if you, if you want. If you, and we saw what the consequences earlier in the vine analogy were to people who did not want to abide in the vine. If you do not abide in the vine, you can do nothing, verse 5. Not only that, if you don't abide in the vine, you're just like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So we could see there are consequences to, you know, our refusal to abide or remain in the vine. And so, even though there are no consequences given here, we know there are those consequences. So we keep, we take care of, we guard, right? We guard something that's precious. There's no need in putting a guard on something that nobody cares about. In fact, uh, you know, if you have an old car, that's no good. And, you know, there's no need in guarding that. It's junk. It needs to be thrown away. You know, that's, you don't hire people to stand guard over it. For what? It's not of any value. But when God gives us these commands, when we see the breadth of the importance of our age and what God is telling us, it's important. And for these disciples who were leading out here, facing opposition to uh, their way from Israel, I mean, one of the major things is, hey, you're not under the law. They would want to stone you for saying that. And yet, this is where God had would have to the Holy Spirit would have to lead them and guide them into all truth about this age. So yeah, it, it was to guard to keep right this from that perspective. I, I I see his commands and Jesus says, well, they have kept the words. They knew with certainty, right? Did they pay attention? Absolutely, they did. And and they believed. So he says in John 17. So interesting how we see keep here. Point D, a new age was dawning. So the disciples may not have fully understood it, but later in John 17, Jesus is saying, yeah, they did get it. But we can see along the way there were questions. Oh, what do you mean you're going away? <laughs> Well, let me go with you. I'll go with you now. I'll fight for you. What do you mean, show us, Father? Who? Then you'll be satisfied. What are you talking about, right? So, yes, the disciples needed to understand along the way, but they finally got it. They finally understood it. They understood that they had to wait for the Holy Spirit. It was a new age dawning. It's like Paul says in Ephesians 2, uh, 3, 2 and 3. He says, surely you have heard about the revelation God gave me 
that is, you know, oh, I read it. I always say that, but why, why not read it? I could quote it. So, uh, Rev, uh, this is Ephesians 3. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. See, that's the word oikonomia. And that's the same word that we have translated dispensation. I know dispensation to some is a bad word. They think, oh, dispensation, oh, that opens up a can of worms for me. But listen, it opens up the truth. This is what Paul is literally saying, that hopefully you have heard about this. I, you know, that was given to me for you. And that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. So Paul is saying and assuming to some degree that you have some knowledge of this, not just I'm telling you this for the first time. I've been teaching this, Paul's saying, and you've heard about it, I hope. And this is a big deal. This is not this is not something that you could shake it off and say, yeah, that was a nice teaching. Let me take that book and put it back on the shelf. Let's learn more about Joshua. You know, no, this is a big deal. This here. This is what I call a game changer. Uh, I mean, this is, it's interesting when um, we had, and, and one analogy I'll give is in some of the treatment with regard to hepatitis, hepatitis C. Uh, so there's, there was, it was pretty bad because it was very debilitating disease. And you, if you get it, then it just, it's chronic. It just, just takes you down, down, down. And then until eventually you die. But uh, there, there were always treatments for hepatitis C. And the treatments would help, you know, make you feel better with the symptoms. They would uh, extend your life even longer if you, you know, follow their regimen. But it didn't fix it. You still ended up at the end of the day with hepatitis C. But you know, there are drugs now that are what I would say are big deals. They are game changers. And, and those drugs, um, not only do they address hepatitis C, but they cure hepatitis C. I mean, literally, after you t take the regimen of drugs that they recommend, you don't have hepatitis C anymore. That's different. That's not just, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's better. It's helping. No, this is a game changer. This introduces the elimination of hepatitis C for those who, who get this drug. And there's not just one company who has it. And there are several now. So think about that. When, when you think about this, the mystery, it's, it's not just, oh, it's more of the same, but it's a, some more features added to it. Think about this as a totally new game changer. That's a new day. And so Jesus was preparing the disciples for this. I mean, it couldn't get any bigger than this. But yet, they were at the very cusp of it. So yeah, if you keep my commands, if you will remain my love, if you abide in the vine, all that's important. Because we need the disciples to be solid in this. Because we're getting ready to, it's going to be big deal here. So I wanted to go back to a couple verses just so we could compare. I say, think about what preceded the Mosaic Law, because that was a new dispensation, right? When the Mosaic Law came, 
yeah, the Israelites were doing certain things, maybe that they were told from, you know, passed down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now God was getting ready to change. This is a game changer. He was getting ready to establish the nation Israel. So I'd like to read Exodus chapter 19, uh, 3 through 25. Let's read it. We'll go quick. So Exodus 19, 3 through 25. So let's start. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. You will be, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak you are to speak to the Israelites. Verse 7. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Then uh, the people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought, about, uh, brought their answers back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. So the people will hear me saying with you and will always put their trust in you. Then uh, Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there will be thunder and lightning and a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud th trumpet blast. Uh, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was covered with smoke, and because the Lord descended on it, fire and smoke, the smoke billowed up from, from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and, louder. and Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended upon uh, to the top of the Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that do not, they do not force their way through 
to see the Lord. And many and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, <clears throat> go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the chief, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So this is a lot to read and I wanted to read it because it was important. It is a preparation that they needed for dispensational change. Literally. Exodus 21. And God spoke all these words. And what do we have here? The Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he went on to tell them all of the Ten Commandments. This was a part of their dispensation. This is even the, the whole dispensation is characterized by that which was written in stone by the Lord. So it's, it's a big deal. A dispensational change is a big deal. It changes things on the ground. And they needed to pay close attention to uh, the details going forward. They didn't, they, not, how many times did God mention this? You know, be careful. Here's what's going to happen. And let me tell you, if you do walk, go through there and, and push past and try to think bad things are going to happen. So hopefully you, you get the, the understanding of how this all worked out because we can read about it. And then we can also see what happened on the day of Pentecost. Acts, we're going to run over to Acts chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Remember, fire represents judgment. Right? That separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And then it goes to the dialogue. And people, their reaction to what happened, right? Utter, verse 7, uh, verse 6, right? it says, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they they asked, "Are these, aren't these, uh, who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language?" And then he, so so this is these were literally, as we're talking about a dispensational change, it happened. Now the Exodus one, yeah, thunder, cloud, a mountain, you know, all kinds of stuff on the Mount Sinai, but here we have the church age beginning. 
And so what do we see in those chapters that we're talking about today, we happen to be talking about? We see the preparation of all that uh, Christ was giving to the disciples for this change. So hopefully. And then uh, point E is by extension, we are to keep his commands as well. And that's 17, that's John 17, 20. I'm back to my notes here. John 17, verse 20. I'm telling you, so we all, it says my prayer is not for them alone. Okay, so Christ is praying for the disciples clearly in the, uh, the, the verses above. But I pray for, also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And that's me, that's you. We are believers through this message. Yeah, well, we're not saying we're disciples of John. We're not saying we're uh, Israelites or anything. We're talking about the special relationship that we have. Where there is no Jew, there's no Gentile. We are one. God made one new man out of the two. We're not talking some previous uh, designation of who we are. God created new creation. Anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. That's what we need to make sure we are aware of. So by extension, right, by application, right there in the text, we are part of this new relationship, this new dispensation that is dawning. So let's keep going. If you keep my commands... You will remain in my love, is the second phrase. So remaining, some of this stuff is uh, axiomatic, so let me just show how I'm seeing they balance out, right? So remaining in his love is equal to the branch remaining in him. That's John 15, 5. Now why do I bring that up? Because there are two different analogies given in John 15. One is about this agricultural analogy about uh, the vine, the branches, and such. And the other one here is about remaining in his love. He's the one given us both, Jesus is the one giving us both analogies, so I'm just trying to help us understand this one point that he's uh, bringing out to us about, uh, you know, he's trying to draw, he's trying to make a point, and he's using a lot of different ways to do it. So that's why I try to integrate this with the previous. The branch remaining in him is the same thing. You know, remain in me as I remain in you. The vine cannot bear fruit. You know, so that whole analogy with the father planting the fruit is important to our understanding of what he means by love. So point B, remaining in his love is recognizing the father's plan for us and offering our lives to Christ. This is literally what he says in 1419, because I live, you also will live. Christ is, went through death, burial, and resurrection, but he's not just alive. Like, okay, I'm, I'm raised, I'm alive, and I'm raised back to the Father. No, but John 14 literally brings out in the very next verse, 1420, that the Holy Spirit will come and Christ would show up, not just in heaven, interceding for us, but he would literally show up in us. He says, on that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. That's 20. And he goes on to talk more about it through all the way through through 23. 
So this relationship, because I live, you also will live, is an extension, is a part of what happens on the church on that day. He's telling the disciples. Obviously, by extension, we also have that. So this whole thing about point C, mutual possession, it is Christ in me and me in Christ, positionally. When I think about what God has done, and every person who is a believer are automatically or positionally positioned in Christ, right? So yeah, we can read Ephesians 2 on this one, uh, just to help us understand uh, the meaning here. So even though I have four, yeah, so here, four, but because of his great love for us, and we could talk about that love, uh, because God is executing his plan. And so God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. So notice the first thing that is mentioned here is not about the fact that he, he saved us. You, know, you would think, okay, after dead in transgressions and sins, right? We followed the ways of this world by nature, objects of wrath, like the rest, you know, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and its desires and thoughts. You know, the first thing you could think about is, you know, it's talking about God's love for us. You would think he was going to say, yeah, and then he saved us and, and by grace. And then, you know, this is how after that, you know, he united us with the first thing he mentions is that he made us alive with Christ. He didn't just say he, he made us alive. He, he made us alive with Christ. That is a reference to the baptism of the Spirit. That is not just a reference to, oh, he saved us. He'd been saving people from Adam. But now he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. So then he mentions, it is by grace you have been saved. Because it is by salvation that is the first order of business. But, but here in this verse, it is not the first thought first thought of the apostle here is about our identification with Christ. And then he continues on in verses 6 and 7 to even show what was on his mind, really what was on his mind. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So that's this new age that's dawning. And that's what it means where Christ is saying, because I live, you also will live. That's that mutual possession. Right? Well, it's me and Christ and Christ and me positionally. I didn't ask. I mean, this took me from the point of spiritual death and raised me up and seated me in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is no, yeah, and then I studied for a long time and matured, and next thing you know, I'm seated. Nope. Positionally, we are there the moment we leave dead in our transgressions and sins. The moment we leave one state, we are literally into the other. That's, that's what we call positionally. 
If you ever want to explain what it is positionally, these are excellent verses to do it, in my opinion. There's plenty of more, plenty more. Point D, experientially, let's talk about that for a minute because we're still talking about you will remain in my love. So we're already positional, but now experiential means how do we live that? It is, it is giving up my rights in this life to Christ. That's what it's like, giving up the right that you have. When I say my rights, I have a right to, to live. God is the one who gave me life, and he, I have free will. I could choose to live my life the way I want to. And God does not penalize me for that. It's, it's, we're, salvation is not by works. But there may, no, there may not be rewards for those who don't live their lives in this manner, where you give up your life to Christ. So it is literally surrendering ourselves to the, the, the whole purpose of the Father. Right? That's literally, Christ says, unless if a man does not love me more than he loves father, mother, sister, brother, yeah, he has to hate him, he has to even hate his own life, he says. I'm just characterizing some of the phrases that he says. There's no middle ground here. You don't say, okay, I'm going to give you 50% and I'm keeping 50% control of my life. I'll give some of it to you and I'll take the rest. But no, he's saying you got to give it all. Christ wants to fully possess you. This is what we're talking about, mutual possession. So if you ask, well, how did Christ do it? He fully gave up himself. Right? He says, I... It's not my will. I don't. I am. I'm not here to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. It's not fifty percent Christ, fifty percent the Father. It was all the Father, and none of Christ. So experientially, it's given up my rights in this life to Christ, like the Apostle Paul said, for me to live. For for me to live is Christ. There it is. This is Paul saying, for me, how I see it, how I am ordering my life. For to me, to live is Christ. That's how Paul's uh, understanding of what it means. Uh, he's not talking about salvation, obviously. He's talking about how he's ordering his life. He has surrendered that to Christ. It's so if, for me to live, it's Christ. It's his life that's on display. And for me to die is gain. Now, we talked about what, what it meant for Paul to die being gain. But he says, and then he gives, he offers what he means. If I am to go on living in the body, which to live, what does that mean? This will mean fruitful labor for me. That's Philippians 1, 21 and 22. Fruitful labor for me. Isn't that what we've been talking about? Bearing fruit, right? all of that, the production that is through us. So Paul's not saying it'd be fruitful labor for me in the sense that I'm, I'm the one who is going to be leading out because he already told you for me to live, it's Christ. And that's, that's how he sees it. Fruitful labor for me. In other words, that labor will be produced through me. Point E, remaining in his love. Right? So if you remain, you will remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. 
So what does that mean, literally, devotion and commitment to the Father's plan? That's literally what it means, to remain in his love. The Father has the plan, and what does it mean for us? It means devotion and commitment to Obviously, Christ is the focal point for us, even though, because the Father is giving everything over to Christ, so that now Christ is the one that we ought to look to. Right? We, when we transform into his image, then he is the perfect, exact image of the Father. So that means uh, we, we are doing literally what the Father commands, just like Christ did, ultimately. And we were, if we do that, if we have that devotion and the commitment, and really it's about humility because the Holy Spirit gives us all of that motivation. To That's the influence of the Spirit, the devotion, the commitment, right, the, the uh, understanding of, uh, how important it is. All of that comes as the Holy Spirit. Because where were we? What What is your motivation? <laughs> Dead in transgressions and sins. That's where you came from. That's where God found you. Is following the, cra- the cravings of your sin nature, like the rest. We were like, n- by nature, objects of wrath. That's where we came from. So w- what is this new motivation that we got? It comes from God the Holy Spirit. Don't overestimate yourself. Don't think, wow, you know, I'm really, I'm pretty good after all. I mean, I, I've developed standards and I have a scale of values. I, I wouldn't do certain things and believe me. All of that motivation comes from God, the Holy Spirit, not you. You can't even take any glory for advancing in the spiritual life. None of it is you. If you want to talk about what you did, we already saw that. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seek after God. There's none who do good, not even one. That's you. You want to talk about God, the Holy Spirit? Love, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. He will guide and direct you into all truth. That's the motivation. He spreads love abroad in our hearts, as we have read. This is not anything that comes from us. So stop for a moment, divest yourself of all the credit you have given yourself for being such a great person, and make sure you place that this right squarely on the shoulders of God and his plan for us, his provisions for us. So there it is, that devotion, right? It's just like Christ, like we already know what John 14, 31 says, where he says, the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. So that's ex- exactly what the next phrase leads us to. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That's what Christ did. We saw it in John 14, what it means. He loves the Father. How does that? How is that expressed? By him being completely obedient or stepping aside and allowing the Father to fully possess him. See, we could say this in a lot of different ways because we have all these analogies given to us. The richness of this relationship is explored by us telling it in different ways, right? So if I just said, this is just one way, this is the only way you can think about it. But when I broaden that, say, oh, it's like marriage. <laughs> it's like I'm the head and you're the body. Oh, it's like mutual possession. Oh, that gives you different aspects of how this relationship works and the spiritual depth of it. 
So I'm hopefully you, you, you are beginning to relate all of these things together for yourself. So, and then, so what happens if you could keep my commands, you will remain in, in my love. And we're moving on to point number three, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love it's just in the same way as I did it. So just like I, the father loved me, what does that mean? He put, he made me a son, right? He invested everything in me and Christ is saying, and when Christ realized he was on the ground and that was the deal, Christ said, that's it. I'm going to do whatever the father wants me to do. I'm here. I got it. I'm here to do his will, not mine. And I love the Father. Not only do I see that this is the will for me, but I agree that this is the will. And I love the Father. When he says he loves the Father, he's talking about he loves the Father's plan for him. I love the Father's plan for him. I I love it too. I mean, not just what Christ did, but me. I I saw it. I understood. Now I'm saved. I understand that my God called me from eternity past, and that now it's the same thing for me. And this is how uh, infectious the Holy Spirit is when it comes to this new information. So, so Jesus is our example. He completely sacrificed his life. He completely sacrificed his life even before he arrived at the cross. So some people think it's just, oh, yeah, when I get to the cross, then, then Jesus actually shows up and does the Father's will. <clears throat> he has been doing the Father's will the whole time. So, so John 5.30 is a good example of it. Um, let me go to John 5 and 30. Let's read it. So it says, he says, by myself, I can do nothing. Wow, isn't that the same thing he said in, in John 15, 5? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I, literally, that's what I was telling you earlier about who you are before this motivation. You can do nothing. You don't have this understanding. Christ is literally saying the same thing here. By myself. Even though he's perfect. He's not dead in transgressions and sins. He's not you know, uh, following the ways of this world. He's not doing any of those things. But in 5.30, he says, by myself, I can do nothing. That's, to me, somebody who understands what his role is, and he is embracing it. He knows that he has limitations, and he has to depend on the motivation of the Spirit. So, I judge only as I hear, in other words, what the, the Spirit shows him, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but to please but him who sent me, but to please him, it really by implication means, but to please him who sent me. Who's the one who sent him is the Father. He's literally, he's, he's telling you bare bones where he stands. It's not about him. It's about the Father. It always has been about the Father. And John 17, 8, what does that say? Let's turn to that. I think it sounds like we already read this one. 
17, 8, I gave them the words you gave me. So there, you, the words you gave me, right? I gave them what? My own teaching? No, I gave them the words you gave me. Christ is under a plan, just like we're under a plan. Christ is not here to do his own will. He's here to do the will of him who sent him. I gave them, the disciples, the same words you gave to me. And they accepted them. They knew with certainty I came from you and I believe that you sent me. Yeah, this, as we put all this together, we can see that what it means to remain in the Father's love. Why, why is this the Father's love? Well, the Father had this motivation from the beginning. That's what we know. You could say, well, who gave it to the Father? We could ask that question. We don't have that in Scripture. We, we can't answer that in Scripture. But we can, o- we can only say that it originated with the Father. It could have been that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they're all equally God. They all have the same intelligence and knowledge and wisdom. They're all God. But it is said to be the Father's plan. So this is how it is presented to us. This is how we proceed. Don't have the answer as to who got it, where the Father get it from. <laughs> Why did the Father want it? We can start asking those questions. They're valid questions. But just to note, this is the Father's plan. So let's go to B. I know that our time is starting to move forward here. So B is... We're going to do this forwards and backwards, just so we can understand it both ways, right? So forward is, Jesus loved the Father and does exactly what he commands. That, right? That's showing you that Jesus' love for the Father is the motivation that, it, that propels him to do exactly what he commands. Right? So it's not just, I'm doing whatever Christ commands and that shows I love him, right? But he's saying, he could, you could say this front and backwards, right? So backwards is, doing exactly what the Father commands is remaining in his love. That's, so notice the key thing here, the key motivation, and frontwards and backwards here is not the works. It is remaining in his love. Jesus' love is what we see as the motivation for him obeying the Father's commands. So a person who says, I'm just going to look at the Mosaic Law and I'm just going to be obedient to God as I can, as I can possibly be. That is not what was going on here. But unless you have understanding, right? you can't just say, I'm going to obey the Father's will, but you don't know what the Father's will is. So you ought to take some time making sure you know what pleases the Father. That's the scripture in Ephesians 5, in fact. So, no matter how you look at it, forwards or backwards, love is the proper motivation in the spiritual life. It's not obedience. It's not blind obedience. It's love. Love comprises all of those things, knowledge and wisdom and, and you know, the, the desire, the humility to learn of him and all of that. And then it eventually comes, turns out to be love, where we have that devotion and commitment to, uh, to, to, to what the Father has shown us as his ultimate eternal purpose. 
Point number C, let's keep going. Remaining in his love is akin to sacrificing his life for the Father's plan. Christ did that. Not only he gave up everything, nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Right. So, so what does that mean? It meant where Christ was volitionally accepting of the Father's presence in him. He knew that the Father was in Christ. He knew it was God in him, God the Father, reconciling the world unto himself. It was the Father in Christ that drove him to the cross where he would become his lamb, the, the Father's lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it, it is Christ had to Christ had a choice in the matter. He didn't have to. He could have said, no, I'm, it's my will. I, I'm not going to follow your will. But Christ accepted the new spiritual dynamic where the Father's living in him, doing the work and the speaking and teaching and all that. So we have some scriptures that say just hopefully that. John 12 is the first one. We'll go through these quickly. 49 and 50. 49 says, this is what Christ is saying, for I did not speak on my own. Notice it's not just about the cross. It's the whole life of Christ as well. But the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his commands lead to eternal life. So whatever I say, it's just what the Father has told me to say. So Christ, he's on board with everything. He says, I know that the command, he's, he says, I have the full knowledge and understanding that this is true. This is the way it works. So I'm fully confident to stand behind this plan, to put myself behind this plan, to love this plan. So whatever I say is just what father has told me to say literally that's the integration that we're talking about christ understands his will he understands who he is but he understands what the father's doing in him as well when he speaks he says, i'm not speaking on my own that's not me that's the father he's not blaming the father he's he's but he because he agrees with the father but he notices there's that distinction between his will and the Father's will. And so that's part of how we, we ought to see this. That's John 12, 49, 15. What about 14, which we, we should be very familiar with, 10 and 11? He says, don't, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is the dynamic that literally is part of the church age. Right now, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Literally, that's just what I said before. Because When I picked that verse 19, it's because I live, you also will live. It's the Father living in me, literally. So then, <clears throat> as 10 and 11 as well, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, at least believe, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And then verse 24 Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Notice, he didn't, he's saying, the, the words, these words you hear, but the Father and me, me and the Father, all that are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 
I'm hoping this establishes a lot as we read and rehearse these words over and over. We've come, we've come to this juncture before. Hopefully it is a reminder of where Jesus is adding additional information in John chapter 15. Let's keep going. Paul's testimony, the apostle's testimony. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, that's trust, dependence, just like what Christ had, right? When he was saying, I, I know I'm here, but I'm not driving. Christ is driving. And when I thought about this in the analogy, I said, okay, okay, okay. So imagine, we used to use this analogy. You're driving the car, so you get to say where you go and, you know, what turns you make and all that. And what's the direction, um, the speed, and, and where you're going. But now, when you turn your life over to Christ, some people will say, well, now you, you're, you're not driving anymore. You're on the passenger side, and literally Christ is driving. But I contend that you are not on the passenger side. You are not in the back seat. You are not in the car anymore. <laughs> That's the whole point. When it talks about, for you died. Right? This is what Paul is saying. Uh, I died, literally. Before the law was his life. He was a Pharisee. I mean, to take the law away from a Pharisee is to take water from a fish. It was everything for Paul. As far as the law, I mean, that was the direction and the speed of his life. But Paul says, no, I died to the law. It's not even me anymore. Imagine that. He says, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. He's not even in the car anymore. <laughs> he said, for me to live, Christ. He didn't even say that. He, he, he used bricology in that. He didn't say, for me to live, it is Christ. He just said, for me to live, Christ. By him saying that, that strongly is to say that it is all of Christ. And then he explained it. He says, well, the life I now live in the body, I, I recognize I'm still here on the earth, but I'm surrendered completely. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He trusts Christ with his life, literally. Remember I said earlier, that's what it is. It is Experientially, it is giving up my rights in this life to Christ. It's, for me to live, it's Christ. That's what it is. He's, for you died and your life is now hidden. It's not on display. It's hidden with Christ and God. Set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. And then lastly, where would you be, where would we be if Christ had not kept his Father's commands? What if Christ didn't do it? Right? But we could see the results of all that we have as a result of what Christ did. When he was here, he kept his father's command. He showed everybody and he demonstrated. And because of that, God highly exalted him. 
And now he's calling out those many sons into glory through him. So the question becomes, what can Christ do through us if we remain in him and keep his commands? What are the possibilities that can come as a result of us fulfilling the Father's purpose in our lives? I would say they are gargantuan. They are huge. These are things that we can only discover through our abiding, remaining in his love, remaining in the vine. And I trust as we go forward that this will be a part of our experience as well. Let's bow our heads as we close. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study these things and to come to the knowledge of the truth in, in an even more defined way. Thank you for your grace, which saved us and give, has given us eternal life with by simple belief in your Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. And not only that, you have given us this tremendous baptism of the Spirit, where by one Spirit we were all baptized into the body of Christ. And as Thanksgiving approaches, we thank you for choosing us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in your sight. It's in his name as well that we pray. Amen. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Let everybody say, Amen. Amen. Amen.